Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And you certainly are listening to Melbourne Radio, Community Radio, 3CR. Jan Bartlett with you for Tuesday Home Time and I'm here until 6 this evening. Today, why people from Central America are seeking to enter the US. I'll be speaking to Monica Hill from the Freedom Socialist Party in America. Gene Ethics Network News with Bob Phelps. News from Western Sahara with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. We'll be hearing about a couple of films. Independent Peaceful Australia Network Issues with Shirley Winton. And the coup attempt in Venezuela, Dr Ralph Newmark, the Director of the Institute of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University, spoke at a meeting at Trades Hall last Wednesday. Hands off, Venezuela. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when we open with a delightful musical duet in a tribute to Lennon and McCartney by that spectacular double act, Matthias Rotten Tudor and Joe Hackey the Workers, performing at the door of a flight to anywhere to get away from it all. You say hello, I say goodbye, 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 goodbye. Goodbye World, their favourite travel agent run by the caring business class party treasurer with Joe as a big shareholder, which seems like an ideal agent to book through because they don't send you nasty debt collector letters or send the collectors after you at all when you don't bother to pay the bill. Matthias went two years and not one nasty letter. And it's most credible that for those two years he had no idea and it wasn't until the media contacted him he became aware he hadn't paid the $3,000 bill, hadn't noticed that goodbye world, hadn't docked his credit card. Uh, Yes, Matthias, what's your job again? Minister for Finance. And Joe, your million-dollar shareholding had nothing to do with giving huge government contracts to your party treasurer? None whatever. I object strongly to the implications in your question. It's a Labor Party dirty tricks campaign, Joe, to avoid the real issue, people smugglers invading True Blue Aussie. Still speaking of people smugglers and boats, after his strong stand last week leading to Big Supremo scuttle them more lash than and the team chorusing disaster, the socialists, you know, like a week on like, you know, like border protection. It was little Billy who went to water and said he'd agree to them being moved to the Christmas Island concentration camp for treatment and then spent the rest of the week with his team explaining he didn't really mean what he wasn't sure he meant. More proof of the strength we can expect if little Billy becomes big supremo. On that danger, P1 headline in yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review over a socialist plan to establish a fund to provide more free financial counselling advice for people having the odd bit of trouble with the banks indicates the important people are hoping the dust is settling following the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Financial Royal Commission short-term memory is settling in. Labor plans to slug banks $640 million to pay for fairness fund. The big banks will be slugged, the story starts. Now, 
given the multitude of rip-offs, they're obviously, they're obviously hoping we'll all forget the gross bank robbery by the banks. It's a bit much to suggest the bank them, banks themselves are being slugged. Also yesterday, Scuttle them announced his new climate change, if there is such a thing as climate change, new climate change policy, converting former big supremo tiny a bit more for the boss's emissions reduction fund to the climate solutions fund. Tiny's policy, of course, addressing climate change crap, climate change crap, by handing billions of public funds to the big polluters, which has been so spectacularly successful that True Blue Aussie's emissions have increased by the year. And we can but imagine what they may have increased by if it wasn't for Tiny's innovative idea. Um, so how will your big change be different, Scuttle them? It's obvious, it's got a new name. Uh, and how will the Climate Solution Fund address the problem? I'm hoping it will provide a solution to my climate problem. Uh, and don't forget the socialists would take a sledgehammer to the economy, whereas we help the economy by handing the economy to the big polluters while being able to say we have a climate change policy. Uh, anything else? Uh, no, that's it. Thanks, Scuttledem. Pleasure. Oh, is that a lump of beautiful coal in your hand? Oh, Christ, I forgot about that. I, I meant to leave it in the office, but, but it is beautiful, isn't it? Scuttle them, named after his role protecting us from the desperate during his um, stint as Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, is nonetheless a most sensitive man, a quality verified by no less reliable a source than Mrs. Scuttle them. He's more emotionally sensitive than most people realise. He's sensitive about issues. Once he was so upset about the detention of asylum seekers, he wept on his knees. Confirming Scuttle Them's own comment at a suicide prevention fundraiser that over young asylum seekers held on to ruin menace, you'll find yourself on your knees. You'll find yourself in tears. A man of true compassion and... Dumbass, apparently, because given the decision to lock him up was his, he didn't twig that all he had to do to avoid the tears was not lock him up and prevent a few suicides. One refugee advocate had the discourtesy to quote Scuttle Them's maiden speech in which he informed the country his Christian dear baby Jesus beliefs would guide his public life and suggested, the refugee advocate suggested, his treatment of refugees put the lie to that. But then Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Shorten Ambition went to Xavier and also claims Christianity. So obviously locking asylum seekers up is the Christian dear baby Jesus thing to do. Good news, though, for those Catholic sex-molesting predator clergy and the church generally, and if Matthias and Joe's explanation over that goodbye world business was most credible, here's the most credible story of the week. Good news is our old mate Ila Papa, Frunga I, nailed the real culprit attacking the church. It is the devil. Ila Diabolo obviously unveiled to Illa Papa in some divine revelation, meaning the clergy weren't responsible, and it's hard to believe as he outlined his revelation to the assembled, assembled faithful, waiting for them to answer his clues, he was forced to plead, I can't hear you! It's as if they didn't realise it was the devil. Their ignorance of this most credible explanation was presumably also the work of the devil. 
Which brings us to Socialist Party Supremo, little Billy again, and his new policy to increase the compensation package for victims of the financial rorts to two million or so. And little Billy, there's a feeling the compensation packages offered to victims of institutional sexual abuse are extremely inadequate. Will, will you also increase them to a more appropriate level? Look, I sympathise with those victims. I express sorrow to them. But every cent of compensation is less money available for the good works the churches do. And anyway, it now seems we should ask the devil to pay. A good point. Uh, have you got his address? Now, while he's looking that up, speaking of the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, can't the odd headline be misleading? Story this week, Reforms to Help Protect Buyers. Story about the cladding disasters and moves to protect residents. And next to it, Push for Building Watchdogs. Obviously a body to protect those ripped off by developers and builders. Well, no. Push for Building Watchdogs is the poor developers and builders and big construction industry screaming for protection against the out-of-control evil construction unions and their fear a socialist government led by that fearless defender of working people, Little Billy, will make it easier for the out-of-control evil unions to be even more out-of-control and evil. Hard to imagine given their levels of out-of-control and evil already. The same victims of all this don't seem to be so critical of the same unions as they, the unions, run a campaign to ensure the Socialist Party does not oppose the Adani, the Planet coal mine and other coal mines across the country. While mega coal behemoth Glenn Rotten Tudor says it will put a cap on coal production, which the usual suspects interpreted as a giant contribution to addressing climate change. Uh, so instead of coal, what will you be producing? Uh, well, coal. Uh, oh, and how will that help the government, help, help the environment? Well, with any sort of luck, the, the price of coal should go through the roof. The most belated book review award to this review in the True Blue Capitalist Review last week by big corporate player and investor Elmut Funkkappa. Among other things, a former big supremo at Tabcor, meaning he's pocketed a bit of my money over the years. Review complete with a reproduction of the book cover. Elmer says it's a must-read for all caring employers who need to step in, speak up and drive positive changes in society. People expect that, he says. There is a case for business and business councils to lead the debate on issues that matter to people. By reading this book, they will learn that the state of capitalism is not that much different now to 1848. And yes, the belated award for a book review that took about 150 years. The big capitalist recommends caring employers read the Communist Manifesto. I always thought they had and learned from it how to exploit while avoiding revolution, but, but it's time they read it again. Keep the ingrate workers at bay, and without acknowledging it overtly, his review does indicate the foresight Marx and Engels had for where capitalism was heading, including back then that the US of the UN of the US of the world would become a major player. On his incitement for the great corporate barons to lead the debate on issues that matter, brackets my addition in parenthesis to them, matter to them, silly me. Here was I thinking they already did. Finally, yet again, how can satire compete? 
the aforementioned Tiny a bit more for the bosses, commenting on his serious opponent, Zali Stegel, who was a bit critical of Tiny's stand on illegal boat people and climate change crap. She's just negative. She's just negative. He franked his hatred of negativity. Oh, how can we compete? Good afternoon. And that was Mr. Kevin Healy, and you can hear more of Kevin tomorrow, 9 o'clock on 3CR, 8.55, 3CR at 9 o'clock, 14 o'clock, and it's called City Limits. Monica Hill is a member of the Freedom Socialist Party based in Seattle, USA, and recently wrote an article in their newspaper headed Who is to blame for the human misery driving migrant caravans? Monica reiterated that the majority of the desperate people are escaping violence and poverty and they originated in three countries in Latin America. But I put it to her that looking at the aggression by the US of peoples and governments in Latin America and the Caribbean over the past hundred years or so, it could have been people from any number of countries. And for that we need to look at first the concept of manifest destiny and also Monroe Doctrine, and I asked her to explain them. The Monroe Doctrine, which I think came about in like maybe 1823, I'm not sure about the dates, but we call the Monroe Doctrine and the Manifest Destiny kind of twin pillars of U.S. imperialism, the U.S. empire. The Monroe Doctrine states that everything that happens in the southern western hemisphere is the proper business of the United States and that the European powers should keep their hands off. And the European powers had definitely, you know, explored things that it would like to do and was deeply involved in the slave trade from different countries and all that. So the Monroe Doctrine says that. And its intervention, America's intervention in Latin America and the Caribbean, of course, always meant disaster for the indigenous people there. And and millions upon millions of indigenous people died from invasions, etc., that came from America. And it involved not only the three countries that are in that article and caravans, but, of course, Cuba, Grenada, Haiti and Santo Domingo and Venezuela, uh, all, you know, all South America, Central America. And it was also this Monroe Doctrine, the basis of the Spanish-American War, which was all of this basically involving expansionism. It's very easy to see today. One of the favorite things we talk about in this country is, you know, the government talks about is regime change. And, and that it is a good thing, and the government thinks that it is a good thing that the, that the God-empowered American government is here to make regime change, which is what it's trying to do in Venezuela right now. There's the Monroe Doctrine, and it came very early. Then there is the whole concept of manifest destiny, and I think that might even be an older one, but that's the idea that occupation of the American continent is God-ordained heavy on the God part. And this resulted, as I earlier said, in the near extinction, really, of Native Americans in this country. And, you know, the famous Abraham Lincoln advocated the eradication of Indians because they stood in the way of westward expansion, which was, in his mind and the mind of the capitalists of of America, uh, God-ordained and wondrous and an assumed superiority. 
superiority by whites, you know, part of the white supremacist basis and basic of this country. That basic superiority that is discussed and talked about, they turned them into doctrines, and then they used the doctrines to, as their excuse to invade, for example, Santo Domingo, invade Cuba. Now they're talking about, as I said, invade Venezuela. So the American empire has assigned itself the power and the duty, the authority to run roughshod over the entire Western hemisphere. And, of course, the world, but it's concentrating on the Western hemisphere at the moment, trying to get out of the Middle East, but God knows, you know, who next it will decide to try to wipe out. And it's all based on the assumption of of superiority. Well, it's not necessarily invasion, but it's supporting and initiating coups in these countries, and particularly Guatemala in the 20th century. Guatemala is a particularly interesting and important country. It was the first where American intervention and paternal domination in Latin America began, and it began in Guatemala in the 1950s, actually before the Cuban Revolution. What's interesting and important is that the majority of its people are uh, Mayan, indigenous. I think it was in 1954 that the United States helped itself to run Guatemala. There was a, a socialist-type guy by the name of Armas, A-R-M-A-S, who the people wanted in Guatemala. The United States, in league with the United Fruit Company, wanted to get rid of anyone who had any socialist ideas whatsoever. That started a a terrible civil war in Guatemala. Armas, who was defeated, it it also was the beginning of major CIA involvement in creating anti-revolutionary military operations and getting rid of the secret ballot and uh, sending thousands of political opponents to prison. Guatemala became the model by which agents and operatives of the CIA would practice their brand of statecraft with the overthrow of governments. And it has used these tactics across, not only across the Western Hemisphere, but, but globally. Mumia's new book talks a good bit about just some of those tactics, but it was, it, and that was just the beginning, and then there was Cuba, <laughs> and everything that the United States did to try to stop that revolution for years, and still, and still does it. When you talk about Guatemalan coup in 1954, mm-hmm. the peace process was 23 years ago, but many people say that the violence and the repression has never ended in Guatemala. Oh, definitely not. That civil war went, went, went on for, God, I think maybe 20 or 30 years, and millions of people were killed, especially the Mayans. I had a quote that I was going to use, but there wasn't room, from somebody in Guatemala who was coming up through the caravans, and he said that effect of that civil war had on Guatemala still holds today, and they've got a terrible, terrible leader today, as they have had. One of our one of our comrades is married to a Guatemalan, Hugo, who has written a soapbox some time back. Eighty percent of the victims during that civil war 
were, were Mayan. And, and the people are still suffering from it. And there have been backs and forth and upheavals and resistance. And now they've got someone by the name of Morales trying to escape corruption charges. Similarly with neighbouring Honduras, where the US carried out its wars on Nicaragua and El Salvador from that country. Yes. I'm not as familiar with Honduras, but it is uh, one of the countries, as I recall, where the United States has had for some time a rather cozy relationship with the government, which means that it is a very oppressive uh, government, has counted on Honduras to be its support always. never varies, like in the United Nations or whatever, you can always count on Honduras to vote with the U.S., and it also has got military bases, American military bases in Honduras, from which the United States military has operated in its various invasions and abuses of other South American and Central American countries, like Nicaragua and um, El Salvador, and I think it uses uh, it's the U.S. military bases in Honduras as well to train reactionary militias for the various fights that have come up and the civil wars that have come up in, in Central America. The people of Honduras, who the indigenous people in Honduras are, I know it's um, a mixed black and uh, and light-skinned people the people <laughs> who live next door to me in Los Angeles were from Honduras and the husband was black and the woman wasn't what about El Salvador we have a comrade from El Salvador in Los Angeles she's the organizer of the F Freedom Socialist Party in Los Angeles it like Nicaragua fought back hard in the 80s and there were movements in this country that supported the Salvadorans uh, and the Nicaraguans in their battle against their reactionary governments and in their successful defeats momentarily of their reactionary governments. There's uh, a lot of gang activity in El Salvador coming from this country, really, uh, Salvadorans who have been dumped back into, in, into El Salvador. A lot of the refugees who come, come because it is a lousy place to live. And it is one of the countries that I talked about, so you could probably get some more detail about it from my article. And Nicaragua was, it reminds me of Venezuela. It was a government that fought, or, or a people who fought hard in the 80s and won some important battles. And we had people who went from the FSP, Freedom Socialist Party, to visit and work with Nicaraguans at the time. It wasn't really a socialist government, although it was presented as such, as is the case in Venezuela as well. Its relationship with Native Americans in Nicaragua was something that we did not agree with, but it was nevertheless a progressive movement and there was definitely you know world support and especially high support in this country in america and now nicaragua is also going through similar things their uh, semi-socialist governments have not been able to counteract the right-wing reaction and the american intervention in their countries what can you tell us here in australia 
about the people who have fled from those countries, they've gone through Mexico. I'd imagine a number of those haven't survived that journey. From what I read, and we had two people go down there and help working with the during the heavy heavy duty time when actually the caravans were safer for people for refugees than coming in and getting help or were you know paying coyotes to get them uh, up you know paying somebody to get them through the border because the caravans were people together they actually had uh, meetings and voted on things they were uh, quite well organized by the people themselves and they had a lot more women in them and families that's one of the reasons that they were better organized i think the, you know the women so i don't know that they lost as many as as happens but recently there's still a massive number of people who are trying to get into the united states and the united states government today has erected even further barriers, not only the big wall that Trump wants, but barriers for signing up and whatever. And they're, and, and they're just plain not letting people in, or very, very, very slowly. The biggest concern is how they've segregated and separated children from their parents. And there are thousands of children that are in, quote, detention cages. In some instances, will probably never be reunited with their parents because their parents were deported. I mean, it's a total mess, and they don't care. The government, the American government doesn't care. Some of the caravanistas have been invited to stay in Mexico and get jobs, but the jobs in Mexico are not very good and they're badly paid, and a good many number, if it's just men coming up, they come to get the money and send it back to their fa- back to their families, but the wages in Mexico for a single man might be enough for him to live on, but not enough to send to his family. And Mexico has, has really still in, been in cahoots with the United, U.S. government, and its police have been in cahoots with U.S. police in making life miserable. And border towns don't have the facilities as well in Mexico to help people. So the caravans, I think, are an important and probably will continue to be an important avenue of refugees traveling together to get out of their situation. But the anti-refugee, anti-immigration politics that are, are coming out by pro-fascists everywhere in the world are you know, increasing in this country and in Mexico. How are these people being assisted at the moment? And have you got any idea of how many people there are on the border trying to get through? I would say still thousands. And some have decided to return if they can. They get placed in one place and some of the the Mexicans themselves are helping them and Oh, and they're all given numbers now. You might go online on socialism.com to read the report from our comrades who went down there because that would give you a sense of what the life down there is for the caravanistas and also the work that people are doing to help them because they need all kinds of help from humanitarian to legal help to political help. We have to acknowledge that there are many, many people from Latin America already 
in the United States who haven't got the proper papers because they've come in illegally, they're being exploited in the work that they're doing. Who's helping them and how serious is their situation of maybe being sent back to where they come from? In some instances, that's happening, and it's not just happening to Latin Americans. There are people in this country right now that are being rounded up who came from Cambodia and Vietnam 30 years ago and being sent back, and they don't know anything about those countries. With regard to Latin America or or Central America, there are immigrant organizations and there are uh, immigrant legal organizations that prioritize on the legal help that they can get in the United States. Probably, and that's been going on for years, but it isn't enough. They also have played a very important role in unions in this country. Whether or not they have papers kind of depends on, or whether or not they can they can survive without papers kind of depends on you know individual cities and and union support. But they have uh, you know Latin American workers have have been a, a help to rank and file union people, and certainly despite all the things that are wrong, discriminating against immigrant workers in this country, it is I think physically probably for the time being safer here than it is in many of their countries because of the the tremendous violence and tremendous poverty and in some countries oh i meant to mention the suffering of women especially who have often been the farmers in central america and south america because the men went into the cities to find jobs or the men went north emigrated someplace find jobs. Women have, have, have suffered greatly as refugees. I don't think the situation in the United States is quite as bad as what is, what's going on in Australia from what I've read from you know what you've all written about them being shoved onto this island and, and not allowed even in Australia, that kind of thing. But they are involved in the fight back and they, ha- they did indeed revive the union movement are a part of the reviving union movement, so it's certainly better to be here than uh, attacked by dictators and gangsters, drug cartels in their home countries. But nevertheless, there's a whole generation of immigrants from Latin America who have kept industries in the U.S. going because of their cheap labor. Yes. Oh, I would say agriculture farm work, and also the hotel industry and restaurants. There's huge numbers of immigrants working in the hotels, and what's exciting is that the hotels are on strike in many places, and many of the immigrants may not have papers, but they're nevertheless involved in the picket lines and the striking activity, and they they lend militancy. Healthcare, that's another one. A lot of immigrants are involved in the care of elderly people, getting very low wages in the worst nursing homes, I would say. Some get jobs as as live-in companions, and if they've got some education, uh, a lot of immigrants are involved in hospitals and medical uh, offices drawing blood and that kind of thing. But healthcare is definitely an industry that depends on immigrant labor. 
Is there a sense, do you believe, from the ruling class that they're fearful of these people from the South because in time English white supremacists are going to be outnumbered by people from the South? Is that their fear? It is not in this country, although the right wing would like to think that and are definitely trying to instill that fear. But in fact, this country has been so long peopled by immigrants from many, many different countries, from many different cultures. It really isn't a big deal. And it, although it is, and it's, it's true still that whites outnumber peoples of color. We have so many peoples of color that, that uh, it's not, the outnumbering is not nearly as big as it used to. And it's not even something that, you know, quote, you know, normal people talk about. It's the, especially the Trump administration and all the people who depend on it and have fostered that kind of stuff that are trying to scare people into that. And there, and, and now there's, they're, you know, bringing back the, uh, the socialism, you know, uh, anti-socialism stuff, the Red Scare stuff, coming up with all this shit. You know, a good many of the schools have large numbers of immigrant kids and have been forced by law and by, and by just existence to have English language courses and, and some of the schools have done a good job about it, and some of the schools have not been given the money to do what needs to be done because there are a lot the immigrants have more children. In fact, that, that's something that's interesting. I think in the Western world, in Europe, I, I know I've read this about, and I think it's true in Japan too, and it's, it's probably true here, except we've always had so many immigrants, and the, 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 they have more children. And in some of these countries, what's happening is that the old, the elder generation is increasing in number and increasing in costs. So the number of workers is going down in the, in the Western, you know, the advanced countries. But I think that's probably less true here in the United States than in a lot of places because we have been so long a product of immigrants from especially the Western Hemisphere, from Haiti, and Central America, and South America, and of course Mexico. Many thanks to Monica Hill, and Monica's from the Freedom Socialist Party, based in Seattle, northern west USA. And you are listening to 3CR, and the time now is coming up to 34 minutes past 4 o'clock. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Why are 10,000 acres of canola being dug up in Europe? That's a question I put to Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Bayer Crop Science, it's the new uh, 
big seed owner on the block these days. It's been producing canola seed in Argentina for export. Some of that export canola turns out to be genetically manipulated. It was sold into Europe where it's illegal, so French and German farmers dug up over 10,000 hectares of the Bayer canola after um, they found their crops were contaminated. And Bayer now has to pay out over 20 million euros to the affected farmers. They're pretty hot about it, of course, and, and vigilant. So I, I think Europe uh, is still very much wanting to be GM-free. Farmers and shoppers are joining together to make sure that Europe largely remains a GMO-free region. And that's very encouraging from our point of view. It's a big hit to the farmers there, and um, it's made them even more aware that uh, genetically manipulated crops are... Uh, a challenge to their production systems and it means too that the canola from Australia which is going into Europe as non-GM uh, is more in demand that's very good for our markets here as well so it's um, good for Australia but bad news for some European farmers and uh, Bayer now has to close down its um, seed production system in Argentina that I think is going to be a good thing it says I think that Argentina hasn't been able to um, segregate or um, identity preserve the canola seed that it was producing. I think Bayer is in serious trouble, particularly as uh, it now owns Monsanto, which has got a lot of cases coming up about um, Roundup liability um, dating back um, to the damage that uh, Roundup has done over previous years to people's health and the environment. And there's another case currently in the US... Yes, that's right. The Dwayne Johnson case was um, finalised last year at $78 million against Bayer and Monsanto in a California court for um, Mr Johnson's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that uh, the jury decided unanimously had caused uh, his um, disease. So the Roundup herbicide exposure is now very, very much connected with that particular disease. And another case, first of Another 9,300 cases will be heard in March this year. Late in March, we expect Edwin Hardiman to go to court, also in California. It's over his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which he claims was also caused by his exposure to using the Roundup weed killer, which is being very much debated in Australia now as well. The judge that's going to hear the Hardiman case in California we'll actually be dealing with some 620 cases. <laughs> I think he's going to be busy for the rest of his life of the 9,300 cases that are pending nationwide in the USA as a result of people getting sick um, from Roundup herbicide exposure. And this will happen in other countries as well in time, won't it? Well, I think that's rather difficult to say. I know that the lawyers who deal with group cases here in Australia have been looking for plaintiffs. Our law is different. I think it's going to be rather hard, harder to prove that the exposure to Roundup caused non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in Australia or in other countries. But it is, of course, the um, most used agricultural chemical, which is used for weed management not only on farms but on roadsides and kids' playgrounds, on our streets and pavements. I just think the US law looks like it's more sympathetic to the plaintiff's cases than it's going to be in other countries so it remains to see what the uh, further judgments are I don't think one judgment is going to sort of tip the balance but I think once that is um, resolved and the connection 
to uh, the Roundup exposure is even more convincingly proven in court. There will be cases perhaps in Europe and uh, around the world. Australians are spending $1.7 billion a year on Roundup and other herbicides in Australia. So it's a big industry. The company has been able to, uh, for the last 50 years, get away with uh, denying that its chemical is doing any harm. But now the uh, chickens are coming home to roost, finally. You've been talking about gene editing for quite a while now, and we've been told that there's been the first gene-edited baby in China. Well, it was actually twins, yes, uh, born in November last year. This was against the wishes of the global genetic manipulation, the gene jockeys around the world, who have been saying that um, nobody should do this kind of genetic engineering on human beings. Researcher involved had um, genetically engineered the genome of the kids prior to them being inseminated. They're supposed to be resistant to IVF infection. Now, whether that's true or not, um, nobody's quite sure at this stage. But they were born. scientist involved has um, been put in detention by the Chinese government and has been stripped of all his um, official duties at the university and so on where he worked. But I think the concern here is that there are a number of other very eager gene jockeys around the world who think that Design a Baby Incorporated might be a good idea and a big money spinner. It can't just be left up to the scientific community to have a, a good old boys agreement about not genetically engineering children. Of course, the ethical and moral questions are um, immense because the genes that have been changed in those children will be passed on to their future generations. Their descendants will carry that gene as well. And what its effect and impacts will be on the lives of those people still to be um, born, of course, is hard to say. The global consensus that it was okay to do try and do gene therapy where you didn't actually change the germline genes of the people involved so that they couldn't pass the genes to future generations has now been broken. I think governments now globally need to get into the um, business of trying to figure out how this is going to be first prevented and second, the regulation of the technology and the procedures needs to be much more rigorous as well to make sure, again, that uh, this doesn't happen. The Chinese government says that all the project partners in this, and that does include some foreign US researchers as well, will be punished, and the Guangdong government has the twin babies under medical observation. There's also a story that same researcher may also have um, created another baby that's still in the womb of, of a woman somewhere and may be born in the next month or two. So it's a continuing story and it's certainly one that uh, I think should be exercising the concerns of uh, people around the world. There wasn't the response that we had hoped for, although there is now a new Facebook page which people might like to visit called Stop Designer Babies. Uh, David King, who's been a long-time British researcher and, and campaigner on this, set up the Facebook page, but I don't think it's had the kind of response that it should have. You know, ethicists, unfortunately, are pretty laid back when it comes to new challenges. Many of them are just thinking about how can we kind of make some rules that will facilitate this and sort of take the sharp edges off it without really stopping it. What upsets me, though, is you'll have people throwing up their hands and saying... This is terrible ethically or morally, whichever way you look at it. 
but they don't seem to have the, the same concerns when they experiment on animals. I think we're having experiments on animals and humans. There's this new um, research, out, again, out of China, where macaque mon monkeys have now been cloned and genetically manipulated using the new so-called gene editing techniques. The ethical issues there, at least there is a movement of people who are concerned about the rights of animals and uh, hopefully there will be a response from them. We've been seeking to alert that global network and have had some response, although it's not yet a very noisy response. I think they've got, as community movements do, many more sort of obvious abuses of animals on farms, in the community uh, that they are attending to. But I think these vanguard questions about particularly producing our closest relatives, monkeys, chimps, gorillas and others for research is still a big issue. Anti-vivisection was very big, say, 20 years ago. They had some successes, but we still see that primates are being used extensively in research around the world. So, for instance, in the US in 2017, there were 75,000 non-human primates of all descriptions in laboratories around the USA being used for some pretty horrifying research. Using animals in this way just dehumanizes us humans as well who go along with thinking, well, we do this research and out of it comes new medical therapies for human beings, out of it comes new pharmaceutical products. And, of course, Big Pharma is the section of industry that most uses these animals. Of course, they're used in universities and other research institutes as well. But we need to take a much closer look, I think, at what's being done. The system in Australia is not too awful. Every research institution has an animal ethics committee. I'm on one myself here in Melbourne, and uh, we look at um, rats, mice, and rabbits that are being used in research and are very alert to um, any animal rights abuses and also to ensuring that the number of animals that need to be or are used in experiments is minimised to the greatest extent possible so that um, the research is both meaningful, um, has potentially useful and good outcomes, doesn't abuse the animals in the course of its operation. Unfortunately, in other parts of the world, the rules are not quite as stringent as they are here, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be eternally vigilant about this. Staying with babies for a moment, there's a case coming up, it's already in the High Court here in Australia, about the rights of parents of babies born with sperm donations. A big issue too, who is the legal parent of a child born by IVF even, or uh, where there's a, a donor sperm. Surrogacy, of course, is very vexed. And in a few weeks, in fact, I think three weeks, there'll be um, an international conference on surrogacy at RMIT, which I think will be very, very interesting. So look out for that. Give us a call if you want to know more details. But what does it mean to be a legal parent? This came up in the courts here recently because um, two women who have got children or a child born as a result of a sperm donation are now in conflict with the donor of that sperm. They want to move to New Zealand with their child. However, the sperm donor is saying, I'm the dad and I have a say, and I'm saying, no, you can't move. I, won't, I want access rights to my child. So he's made a genetic contribution to the child. He did express a desire to have some fathering role 
and the court has at the moment taken the view that uh, the women have to stay here with the child in Victoria because um, of the conception by sperm donation. It becomes very, very complex and you do have to think seriously about what we're doing. Another thing going on in the same space, I think, where real legal ambiguity arises is in stem cell therapies. There are now a number of clinics popping up around Australia that are offering, offering stem cell therapies. Tissue is taken from a person who's got various kinds of ailments, arthritis, uh, knee problems, you name it. Some of these clinics are claiming to uh, treat and cure a whole lot of different ailments and yet the evidence for the safety and efficacy of these treatments is still very, very shaky indeed. But as far as the government, the federal government is concerned, the National Health and Medical Research Council, the um, bioethics people and so on, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, take the view that because the tissue is being taken from the person themselves, being manipulated genetically, and then fed back into the same person, they're not at the moment in a position to regulate this so-called autologous treatment. It's a bit like blood donation where um, a person's blood is taken if they're going to have surgery. That's not highly regulated either as it's being given back to the same person that, um, from which it was taken. Where it's your own tissue involved, say in plastic surgery is another area that appears to us to be under-regulated because, again, it doesn't include or incorporate a donation of tissue from another person. The so-called therapists or cosmetic surgeons can get away with um, doing treatments without much regulation as well. So I think that's an area, stem cell therapies and um, cosmetic surgeries, that need a second look from our regulators as well. Some more issues, Bob, pertaining to Australia, and two of them to do with parliaments, one in Western Australia and one in South Australia? Yes, that's right. There have been inquiries uh, in the South Australian case. There's a select committee inquiry going on at the moment to decide whether or not South Australia's uh, GM-free status, its um, ban on the growing of genetically manipulated crops there, uh, will be lifted or not. This was part of a deal done prior to the election last March in which the Parliament decided that the ban would be extended until 2025. Really good news, I think, for South Australians. Uh, the ban has been there since 2004. It's been very effective in keeping uh, the state more clean, green and GM-free. The food industry there is benefiting from that. But the Liberal government has now held its own inquiry and come up with a report last week which is saying, no, there are no benefits, um, it's a bad idea ban should be lifted. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out but at the moment the government has sort of got in first um, tried to upstage the parliamentary inquiry. Um, so whatever happens we'll have to go back to the parliament. We believe the numbers are there for the moratorium on the growing of genetically manipulated crops in South Australia to be kept in place until 2025. Parliamentary inquiry in Western Australia uh, was last year considering whether or not a compensation fund should be set up for contamination from genetically manipulated crops. And unfortunately, it reported a couple of weeks ago and said, as um, governments previously had, that the common law uh, would be sufficient enough to compensate anybody. Well, the evidence is clear there. In the Marsh versus Baxter case, which was also settled last year, Steve Marsh lost. The court said that um, he had no case 
against his neighbour for the contamination which had blown over his fence. That's a bit of a disappointment. I think the government and, and the parliamentary inquiry were really running rather scared that it would spill over into issues like spray drift, cows coming over from neighbours' property and so on, and that they would have to compensate people for those things as well. So the debate continues. The West Australian group, the Food Watch group that's working on this, is still up and running and very keen to carry the arguments forward. So we'll be working on that again this year as well. And a Senate inquiry into agricultural chemicals? An absolute bummer. There were two inquiries, in fact, one into the independence of the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority. The finger had been pointed at the APVMA's independence because we now know that uh, CropLife Australia, which is part of a global network of the chemical industry, which does its PR and its lobbying, has actually donated something in the order of a quarter of a million dollars to our political parties, particularly the Labor Party and the Nationals, over the last five or six years. The government, and with the agreement of the opposition, have been massaging the the legislation on the pesticides and veterinary medicines in in, in Australia, and particularly they have been working on legislation to, to streamline the way that these assessed and approved And I just think that this shows pretty convincingly that the APVMA doesn't have the independence that it needs. In fact, it has to recover the money that it it spends to operate, and we're talking about several hundred million dollars a year in order to do its work. And that is also mostly as a result of levies on the sale of chemicals. The independence of the APVMA is absolutely shot, really, as a result of being dependent on the industry for its income and the industry paying our political parties or giving our political parties so-called donations. The APVMA has worked with uh, Food Stamps Australia New Zealand to raise the maximum residue limit of some of those chemicals allowed in our food supply as well. So our regulators are not independent, their um, legislation has been streamlined and it's just mind-boggling that um, in the 21st century uh, these absolutely toxic substances are being so liberally sprayed in farming environments, ending up in the food supply and affecting people's health as we've seen with the uh, Roundup case that we uh, first discussed one thing that we need to talk about and that's mutant meat and that sounds absolutely appalling to me as a vegetarian anyway Yes, well I feel the same about it too. Lou Sales at Friends of the Earth who runs their emerging technology project uh, who is is also a vegan recently did um, report uh, and you can look it up Friends of the Earth mutant meat report about what's being done to farm animals around the world to make them more muscly so they produce more meat. But, of course, there are downsides to that. For instance, their um, calves need to be, or their piglets need to be um, delivered now by caesarean section routinely because they're so large and and muscled when they're being born. The mutant meat report is just awful and mind-blowing. And I think if anybody out there in listener land cares about what's done to animals in industrial farming situations, then the mutant meat report needs to be read and acted on.
we need to stop this genetic muni- manipulation of um, farm creatures, you know, which is only done to make another dollar, to make them more muscly, to produce more eggs or milk. We can just go on and on. There's also a proposal at the moment to introduce bovine growth hormone into Australia, which is um, injected into milk-producing animals in order to uh, squeeze more milk out of them. So that's another one that we need to keep an eye on and that we've been watching. It hasn't been approved. It's been in the pipeline now for something like two to three years, and the APVMA appears to just be sitting on that one until the time is right to give it a tick, I would say, although the milk industry is in crisis and uh, I suppose there would be some farmers out there who think that uh, squeezing more milk out of their cows would be a good idea. Oh, there's not too many. That's Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network and you can get onto their webpage, Gene Ethics Network and also Friends of the Earth Network to find out more of these stories that we've been talking about today. Hi there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilda. Why don't you come on down, do the Google thing, check out echocenter.com and find out how you can help us help you look after the planet. And by the way, don't forget to support 3CR. And our regular focus on occupied Western Sahara the last colony in Africa, where people have never ceased to call for self-determination since Morocco occupied their land after the departure of the former colony, Spain. Joined once again by Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. First, Kate, a view of the occupied territory through the lens of a camera, and the photographer is Ellie Laws. She travelled there in 2017... What do you know about her? Well, I didn't know anything until I saw this article, but then I wrote to some French friends and said, you must know this French photographer. Claude wrote back and said, yes, she's the person who came and spent some time with us when I was on hunger strike last year. She also attended the... European Conference of Solidarity with the Sahari people, known as UCOCO. So uh, she has been involved with the supporters of Western Sahara in France and, I suppose, more broadly in Europe. How did she come to take all those photos? It appears that she had graduated from a photography course in the south of France at Valence. Then she took a year out to do a photography project in which she was going to ride her bicycle all the way down the west coast of Africa to Abidjan. On the way, she became rather fascinated with what was happening in the Moroccan-occupied part of Western Sahara. So she returned and did a special project, the cause, no doubt, of her interest in Western Sahara and what was going on, and the subject of both special exhibition in Arles at the end of 2017, I think it might have been, it was a while ago, and now another exhibition of these photographs in Grenoble, which is also not very far from Valence. Can you talk about some of those photos? You've been in a lot of those areas. Well, yes, it's a very interesting little project called Identity Under Construction, 
and she has been particularly taken by the efforts of the Moroccan occupation to impose their culture on the Sahrawi culture to obliterate Sahrawi links and meaning in the landscape and to, as it were, she says, sort of impose a de facto ownership of the country which would, she says that they would hope that the referendum of self-determination would become obsolete and unnecessary and they would just be acknowledged as the official sovereign of of, of Western Sahara. So she's picked out little things like the way in which they, well, there's one poignant thing where the there are a few nomadic Sahrawis. Most of the people living there are living in towns, but there are some nomadic Sahrawis with their the pastoral nomads, with their camels and goats. And on the part of the uh, pasture becomes very uh, green in a particular time of year. The Moroccans bring down their own sheep to graze there and take all the pasture from the indigenous Sahrawis animals. I mean, that's one way in which they've tried to interfere with their pastoral nomadism. They also are very big, and this is something I saw a lot, that they would try to create these grand allays, grand arrivals in, in towns, and there would be elaborate street lamps and street architecture uh, generally, and maybe a line of palm trees, and then it would you'd see that it was complete veneer because after that there would be nothing. Sometimes it would be already showing the signs of wear, and one of her pictures shows very dramatically these palm trees absolutely bent in du- double and touching the ground as they've keeled over without being properly tended. So, yes, and and there's also another thing that struck a chord with me that I'd seen when I was there is that they kind of um, come into a town and want to expand it and bring in new Moroccan settlers and they lay it all out with streets and, and maybe street lights or something like this and then nothing happens. And then it's just a sort of ruin. I don't know whether it ever will get... Uh, built on but it um, time after time you would see these sort of areas where where they would probably have had some money for urban development possibly from an international source they do stage one and then stages two three or subsequent stages never happen this goes on a lot that uh, Morocco was the top city uh, supported by international aid by uh, the European Union in the world and this is what happens to the money and UN money. They get a lot of UN money, but um, it all goes to their glorification and not really to the uh, benefit of the people. I'd imagine there'd be certain risks in taking photos like these. Oh, yes. She must have had some subterfuges. No doubt she presented herself as a tourist, which was possibly all right, just and riding a bicycle like that is sort of a bit way out, you know. She um, may well have had to protect her camera 
hide her camera. She would have been under threat of having her camera confiscated or at least the card that her photos were in. She might possibly have had her camera itself returned, but some of the people in the delegation I travelled with uh, lost photographs because Moroccans impounded their cameras and and looked at the photos. Uh, really, there was nothing serious about what we took, I don't think, but they are very, very, very sensitive about photographs getting out. I imagine it would be interesting to know how she dealt with that, whether she sent her photographs home every day by email or did had some other ways of of doing it. The other half of Western Sahara is that of the refugee camps in the deserts in Algeria where people have been living in very harsh conditions, many up to 44 years. The photographer this time, I believe, is English? Uh, no, I think he's American. I looked him up. He's at an American East Coast University, but his doctorate was from the University of Southern California. Actually, his doctorate was in international politics. His special study was on uh, Catalonia, but more broadly, he was interested in self-determination. So it's not surprising that he found his way to Western Sahara as an example of um, a country still seeking self-determination. But he's also a long-standing petrol head, self-confessed petrol head. So the study that he did when he was in the camps or that he's published, I mean, he may have other things, but this particular study that was published in a sort of um, petrol head magazine by the sound of it called Jalopnik or something, they're beautiful photographs, absolutely lovely, stunning photographs of the sometimes wrecks of cars that haven't made the grade. But his main research established there were two uh, makes that have survived. Yeah, he, he, he says the king and queen of the desert who can survive the, which can survive the conditions there, which are extremely harsh on cars just as they are on people are the cars that are very solid, uh, solidly built and can be repaired roadside. No question of taking them off to the garage or anything like that. They will break down. Even the very good ones will break down. But if they can be repaired with your normal toolbox, those are the ones that are most prized. And the two makes particularly are Land Rover and Mercedes, and he gives the actual makes of these cars, but they date back to the 1990s. They're not uh, recent models of any of these things because clearly any car that relies on electronics would be out of the question. Interesting to see, and he he, um, talks about the way in which the upholstery gets redone sometimes with, uh, with carpets or... towels or all kinds of things but I've seen cars like this in the camps I have to say yes and uh, it's quite entertaining yes did you talk about or take photos of the the families or the the men who are in these cars 
Probably he has got them, but in the in this particular article, it's mostly cars. One or two have got the kids sitting on the bonnet of one of them, and generally speaking, this is a the king and the queen of the desert are these cars, and though they are the the subject of his portraits. You spoke a moment ago about your friend Claude meeting with the photographer. Her husband is in jail in Morocco. Yes, unfortunately he's uh, subject to a a 30-year sentence. His detention dates from the end of 2010. It is at least diminishing a little bit every year, but it's a very, very long time. They are always having to fight every inch of the way to get the rights that they have as political prisoners. Often they get treated as criminals, which is not what should happen under international law. They should have the right to certain things like daily exercise. They should have right to being able to uh, write and read, get reading material. They should have, above all, prison visits. But Morocco exacts retaliations on, on these people all the time. It just makes life more difficult, both for them and their families. They decided that Claude was not helping the uh, Moroccan regime. They they were particularly annoyed with a film that was made about him and was being circulated widely even to Algiers. And so they stopped allowing Claude to visit her husband. That was like about two years ago. Well, when it got to being about 18 months, she decided to go on hunger strike. She kept that up for quite a long time. I've seen her since then, and she certainly lost quite a lot of weight still. And I don't know whether it had any other adverse health effects, but in the process of that, she seemed to be able to establish quite good relationship with somebody in the French Foreign Affairs Department who made her promises that she would get her visit. She gave up the hunger strike because she was promised that something would happen, yet it's still taken almost five or six months for this visit to actually materialise. And finally, in January, she was allowed and visit Nama. I hope that means that, like the normal situation, has been re-established and that that wasn't in any way a one-off thing, agreed to under pressure. All of the prisoners are suffering different kinds of retaliation. Uh, Nama himself said that he hoped that it would be an end to that little campaign of retaliation against the prisoners. Is she able to speak publicly about the conditions that he's held under and, and his health conditions? I expect she can. I haven't actually seen a report like that. I've just seen that she was able to meet him. I think they've been able to keep in contact, even though she couldn't be there physically, whether it's by email or phone or whatever, I don't know. I guess that she wasn't quite so concerned about that. She just wanted to be able to see him for herself and and no doubt for him to see her, even more important, because one of the retaliations that the Moroccan authorities exacted on them was to disperse all these people. While they were waiting for retrial, they were all together in one prison. 
22 of these uh, prisoners who were, all the prisoners who were arrested at the time of the mass protest known as Gede Mizik. Hard though it all was, they at least had comradeship among each other. But then they came to this point when they, after the retrial, when all the same sentences were reimposed, despite their very flimsy or non-existent legal basis for any of them, the prisoners all got dispersed to different prisoners, prisons throughout Morocco. One or two of them a little bit closer to Western Sahara, but most of them much more difficult for the relatives to uh, visit. Kenitra, where Nama now is, I think is relatively accessible. I think it's near Rabat. It's a military base known for, for as being a very harsh prison where many of the people who disappeared had been kept under the reign of the previous monarch, Hassan II. I have no idea the conditions under which he's being held now, but I can't imagine that it's a bed of roses at all. Thirty years is a long time, isn't it, if you're in conditions like that? It's very, very hard. He fortunately does like reading. If he can get books, he, he does get some satisfaction out of being able to, to read and even write a bit about what he's thinking and reading. Uh, that's not the case for all of them. You know, Nam has been to university and is, I think, qualified in law. I'm not quite sure. But uh, not all of them have got that interest or, or capacity to interest themselves that way. So, I mean, one of the another way that they exact revenge on these people is to not give them the medical attention they need. So, there are diabetics without atten- their proper medications. There people suffering from, more needless to say, whatever the ailments they might have had get worse under these conditions and especially when they go on hunger strike, as they sometimes do, to get their rights back again. And so one of the ones that I'm particularly worried about is the guy who was in organisation on uh, protecting the natural resources of Western Sahara. And he's not young. I think he must be 60 by now. He um, suffers from quite a few things. I met his sister when I was there, there had been some chatter in the press about possibly the king would grant pardons to some of these people. And I said, oh, that you know, it would be great if he can get out. And she said, no, he won't accept a pardon. He won't just have it as a gracious thing. They have to annul the whole basis of which, on which they were imprisoned. He's uh, in trouble, but he's also, they're also... Um, very determined, I suppose that's what kept the Sahrawis going for these 40 years. Just staying with the media for a moment, there's a short video to watch also, and that's from the Nishata Foundation. What do you know about them? Contacted by the guy who started this little group, they're all young people aged between 18 and 25, latest generation of young adults who have wanted to, like others before them, have wanted to try and break the media blockade into Western Sahara and bring their stories to a wider audience so that people will know what's going on. The other group that I've spoken about before called Keep Media or Media Team 
they work in several languages, Arabic, English, French and Spanish. The new group, the younger ones, just do English and Arabic. So that's helpful for us and they wanted to be in touch with us because there's not all that many groups in the Anglophone world. And so I wanted to, I've made their existence known to the the readership of our little also e-bulletin. They're uh, creating these little videos. They've got a a little kind of series called Hear My Voice and they, they do little videos on that. They've also made a animated history of Western Sahara. Western Sahara in minutes, they call it. It it takes about two minutes. It's a little bit rough around the edges. I hope that they can uh, learn to make it a little bit uh, sort of smoother, but no doubt the actual conditions under which they're working aren't very easy. But uh, it's great that they're doing this job of of bringing the stories because uh, constantly uh, journalists are being turned back if it's known that that's what they're coming for. Finally, Kate, the ongoing peace talks, any movements? There are no actual movement to my knowledge, but certainly ongoing. During this month, February, the special personal envoy of the United Nations, Horst Köhler, former president of Germany, will be visiting all the different parties individually to talk with them. And then in March they will have another roundtable talk, possibly again in Geneva. That hasn't been announced. And maybe they'll have another fondue. Apparently, <laughs> the last one they tried to break the ice by uh, the Swiss uh, people brought in uh, Swiss fondue. You all get a fork with your little piece of bread on the end and to dip their sticks in the uh, pot of boiling cheese and it usually makes for quite a convivial party in normal social circumstances, but it would have been quite interesting to be a fly on the wall when the um, Moroccans and the Sahrawis and the Mauritanians and Algerians were sharing their the fondue with the, the Swiss and the German and the whoever else are part of the United Nations team. And that's traditional, isn't it, to have a big a big plate of food and people dip in. Oh, yes, exactly. A shared plate is definitely part of the uh, Sahrawi culture and, and generally, I think, West African culture, yes. And that's Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. And give you a couple of clues to where to find those videos and the films. The two-minute story of Western Sahara, it's from the NASH a A Foundation that's the young people and then the film that Kate talked about first is by Ellie Lutz E-L-L-I-L-O-R-Z and it's Identity Under Construction and then there's the one by Joey Huddleston H-U-D-D-L-E S-T-O-N The King and Queen of the Western Sahara Desert. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR. 
still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Next on Tuesday, home time, a look at a number of issues put forward by IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australian Network. And, of course, it's clear that the major issue is the orchestration of a coup in Venezuela by the US. And I'm speaking with Shirley Winton from IPAN. I totally agree with you, Jan. And it's also, it's it's a pattern, it's a formula that the US has been using for years in the Middle East, in Libya and Iraq and Syria, in the most overt way through military interventions and occupations. But there have been hundreds of other meddlings in the internal political affairs of countries and creating regime changes and and obviously you know you can see the hand of uh, the US and Brazil in the recent elections. I think that the reaction to the US intervention in in Venezuela is much clearer to people. I think it's like another layer of deception about regime changes to bring democracy has been peeled off because of the the outcomes of all these regime changes in the Middle East that created such terrible suffering for the people in the Middle East. But there's also lessons in, in it for Australia. And I, and I think one of the most critical things is the subservience and the, the puppet act by the Australian government and the Labor opposition in so quickly falling in line behind the US in withdrawing support or withdrawing recognition of uh, Maduro and supporting the sanctions. It makes Australia absolutely complicit or Australian government complicit. There is a war, there's a civil war, military interventions. Australia is really complicit in that. And it all sort of points even more strongly about Australia, that we need to really fight for an independent foreign policy. And it weakens the, the, the arm, the hand of, of the US imperialism around the world too as well. I think from Australia's point of view, that's one of the key critical issues is Australia is sort of acting as a deputy marshal, rubber stamping the US aggression, imperialist aggressions around the world and our contribution and I think to opposing or to weakening the, the hand of US is through working towards removing ourselves from the US-Australia alliance and in most immediate and direct sense that's one of the things that we can do in assisting the, the people of, of Venezuela. The other thing about Venezuela, and, and it also relates to, to Australia, is that all this has to be seen in the context to understand what's going on globally and the escalation of US militarism around the world. You know, The instigation of wars or threat of wars that's coming mainly from the US or really only from the US is the growth of China, the rise of China economically, which is threatening US hegemony militarily and politically. And, and obviously economically. And there has been increase of Chinese presence in in Latin America, in Brazil, in, in other parts of um, Latin America. There have been large Chinese investments in Latin America, which which is um, sending shivers down the, the US who previously have had such an upper hand there. And I think that that's one of the reasons for the US taking such extreme measures and so in such a desperate way trying to promote regime change, so obvious and evident to, to most, to a lot of ordinary people, that even the, the mass media is not able to seal it. The US has always, since Chavez nationalised oil in, in Venezuela, the US has, all, has been since that time, since 2002, the early 2000s, 
has been working towards overthrowing Chavez. There's no question about it. But the most recent attempts, I think, are evidence of their desperation. And in some ways, it's also, I guess, a, um, an expression of their weakness. So in the context of the rivalries between the US and between China, I think that's an element that is having some influence on events in Latin America generally and specifically immediately on Venezuela. The thing about Venezuela is that with Chavez, the way the, the people have been prepared, there's an enormous education has gone into raising awareness and political consciousness of the Venezuelan people in the last 15 years or so. And it's going to be a hell of a job for the US to try and impose militarily a regime change and even politically. On the one hand, it, it's a terrible situation. The, on, the, on the other hand, it's, it exposes the US hand much more clearly around the world. And also, it's, I think it, it kind of points for, to the need for, for people to, to struggle against US imperialism, to, to unite and to develop strong international solidarity links. So obviously the sanctions, the years of sanctions, have created difficulties, economic difficulties for the Venezuelan people, and that has always been the intention of sanctions. And we know from history that that's how the US operates in the way it, it prepares the ground for regime change, for social unrest, that creates hardship, economic hardship for people. There's discontent, obviously, and then they set up their own and prop up their own so-called opposition. In this case, we know that the opposition has been trained in Washington and in the U.S. military for a lot of for many years. He's not a well-known. He's not popular in in the sense that Chavez or Madero are popular, and it's obviously the hand of the U.S. is is very evident in that. But I think we have a lot of confidence in the people of of Venezuela to see through through all that and um, to resist the the incursions and interference by the US. And I think that in putting it in that context, that global context, what's happening in Australia in the sense of 2011, 2012, when the US announced the US pivot into Asia-Pacific, where 60% of US military will be moved to Asia-Pacific, that's also designed to resist the, the growth of China, the economic growth of China, and China's influence in, in Asia-Pacific, which, which is rivaling the US. The U.S. is economically in a crisis. Militarily, it's still strong, but economically, it's in crisis. And that crisis really is partly, not wholly, but partly of its own making through global imperialism, where a lot of the America's industrial capacity, that is the manufacturing, has been moved to developing countries on wages that are even lower than the American wages, which are pretty low by developed countries' standards. So that's created further economic crisis, not for the big multinationals who are ripping huge profits out of it, but for the ordinary people, the ordinary working people of the US. That economic crisis is also weakening the US. So the US is relying on its allies much more to resist the and to push back the, the influence, the economic influence of, of China. And Australia in Asia Pacific is one of its key, if not the most important apart from Japan and South Korea, in that resistance to China. The most recent evidence of this is last year there was a conference, Australia-US Ministerial Advisors Conference, 
which basically reaffirmed the significance of the Force Posture Agreement, that's the presence of Marines, U.S. Marines in, in Darwin. The Force Posture Agreement was signed in 2014, which is also part of the U.S. pivot into Asia-Pacific. The original figure for Marines in Darwin was set for 2,500. It uh, presently has only reached 1,500, but now there's, uh, as a result of this Osman conference, there are indications that it's, the Marines are going to go up to 2,500, if not more. The other aspect of the Marines in, in Darwin is that that's part of the interoperability of the Australian military, Australian foreign policies, Australian activities, in particularly in Asia-Pacific, in the US or with the US military machine. So that really ties Australia much deeper into the web or into the net of US militarism, of US aggressions, and obviously is designed for Australia to be a key, well, a deputy sheriff, basically, in South China Sea. Whenever that flares up, when, when it's not clear when, when the South China Sea issue is going to, to explode, but certainly one thing we do know is that Australia will be relied upon by the US, or rather directed by the US, to play a key role in the war in South China Sea. The other aspect of that OSMIN conference is that, this is a quote from their communique, from their press release, is that they've committed to strengthen the bilateral security partnerships with like-minded Indo-Pacific nations, and these are Japan, South Korea, Australia and the Philippines. And the Philippines has a more prominent role in the US trying to retain its hegemony in Asia-Pacific. And all this point to importance of Australia to extricate itself from the, for us to extricate ourselves from the US-Australia alliance, the military alliance. The other aspect, I was talking to Richard Tanter the other day, and we were talking about the triangle of Okinawa, Guam and Darwin. They all have large numbers of U.S. Marines, obviously Guam and Genoa have thousands more than Darwin, but the bases around which the U.S. Marines are rotating and will be rotating in the event of war, and they are very significant in the overall U.S. strategy in the U.S. Pacific that Australia is, is complicit in. And as people say, there's nothing more dangerous than a superpower losing its grip on global leadership, which is happening. Yeah. It's desperate. It's, like it's in decline, desperate to retain that power, and the more its desperation is compelling it to force its hand more openly, they're much more aggressive. They'll take any action at any cost to retain superpower supremacy. And nuclear weapons and nuclear war is still on the agenda. So, in fact, the U.S. is now preparing its manufacturing or the U.S. industrial military complex uh, involved in the production of new nuclear weapons, initially using the threat of these nuclear weapons, nuclear power and decline, possibility of it using nuclear weapons comes much closer to home. And I was reading Hugh White, there have been others who've had this comment to make that, that a land war, uh, America could never win a land war in, a, in around China, but the use of nuclear weapons would be a more likely possibility or an option that they would consider as having more success in trying to push back China. But this all this is all speculation. But you know, who would have thought 
15, 20 years ago that there would be re-emergence of the, of the threat of, of nuclear war, the level that it's, that it's at now. More reasons why we need to, Australian people need to agitate to, to remove ourselves from the US-Australia alliance and that we adopt a foreign policy that vigorously, you know, internationally and in the regional area and locally, it, it promotes peaceful resolution of conflicts between countries. It promotes justice and especially it respects the sovereignty of countries and people. Again, going back to Venezuela, this is where I think it's a, a lot of illusion has been torn off about America's so-called uh, bringing democracy to sovereign countries. We've got a big job to do here. In relation to this as well, the comment that Trump made about Australia being joined or US and Australia being joined at the hip, I mean, I think it, it actually conceals the subservience of Australian governments, successive Australian governments to America. And that joined at the hip and the cost of being joined at the hip and the cost of being part of the Australia-US alliance and our subservience to the US, the economic and political and military costs involved for Australia in regard to containing China, there's the threat and involvement in war while we can, whilst we continue with our subservience to US and our subservience to in this US alliance so there's the threat and involvement of, um, in war in Asia Pacific and also who knows, I mean America might in its desperation urge Australia to send troops to Latin America Venezuela, I mean they you know, Australia was very quick to, to jump to orders from its master in withdrawing recognition of Venezuelan government. What is it to stop it to get the Australian troops or Australian so-called train some of the Venezuelan opposition against the Maduro government? There's the financial cost in being joined at the heap or being part of the alliance, the financial burden on Australian people, the and including the U.S. troops in Darwin, the military interoperability, which requires Australia to pour huge sums of millions, of billions, into the, into the alliance with, with the military to ensure strong support for the U.S. To the point of when you think about the New START allowance, absolutely pitiful it is, and at the ALP conference in December, all that he could announce or was prepared to announce was that there would be a review of uh, New Start allowance in 18 months' time. At the same time, we're spending Australia spending giving away billions to big multinational corporations, the weapons manufacturers, Lockheed Martin, the Raytheon, uh, Honeywell, who are all operating in Australia and getting huge financial assistance from the Australian government. And then the other aspect of the financial cost is the more recent announcement of the electro-optic systems, the so-called Australian company, which received more than $300 million for the production and selling of arms to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, to be used, which will be used against the, the people of Yemen. And just on the humanitarian grounds, it's, it's absolutely appalling and disgusting. It's $300 million that's being basically to prop up destruction and suffering and assassinations of people which and yet our and the people on New Start allowance are, are just getting pittance. It's just absolutely outrageous. Then you have early last year in January the government had set up the export finance and insurance company and allocated three point eight billion in grants to manufacturers of military equipment for export. Now this electro systems company which has just received more than 300 million and they're the only ones that we know about 
that's only 1% of the 3.8 billion. In the meantime, there are other companies also receiving those grants. And then you think of housing, the, the public housing. You, you think of health and education. It's, it's pretty awful, actually. But I, I should say something about that company, the Electro Optic Systems. It was the arms dealer. It was formed in 1983. It started to publicly trade as an Australian company on the stock exchange in 2002. And then in 2005, this company, the EOS, formed a partnership with Northrop Grumman, which is one of the biggest US multinationals, weapons manufacturers and exporters. And in 2015, Northrop Grumman, which is in, in some kind of partnership, was still trying to find find out whether they're actually in joint ownership or they have some kind of connection. But in Northrop, in 2015, Northrop Grumman was the world's fifth largest arms dealer. And in 2018, its revenue was more than $30 billion. Now, this is Australia's taxpayers, that $300 million is Australia's taxpayers are subsidising largely a U.S. corporation which is making profits from trade in weapons and creating a state of permanent wars and, and, and suffering. That's another cost of that U.S.-Australia alliance and being joined at the hip. And we've got to acknowledge that in all these countries that you've talked about in the Pacific who have bases and U.S. soldiers on, or sailors on their, on their shore that people have been protesting forever yes. about this and it's happening in Darwin as well. That's right and the Philippines has been a long history of against US bases and the people did win in the 80s, in the 80s removing the US base. Now they're back again and obviously this is all part of the, the rise of China and China is having some influence, well economically is investing in, in the Philippines as well. The people of Okinawa, the people of Guam have had, you know, decades of struggle against the, the U.S. troops and U.S. bases here. And that brings in the conference that IPAN, the national conference, IPAN is holding this year. That's in 2019. On the weekend, of, the first weekend of August, it's the second, from the 2nd to the 4th of August in Darwin. The main focus is the U.S. Marines in Darwin and advocating for an independent foreign policy. So the, the title of the conference is Australia at the Crossroads, Time for an Independent Foreign Policy. And some of the topics that are going to be addressed is the, the US-China contention risking war in South China Sea, ending the US Marines in Darwin, the cost of host, hosting US facilities in Australian territory, such as Pine Gap and Northwest Cape, the fact that the million refugees are fleeing wars that Australia has supported and participated in. So we're complicit in that as complicity of Australian government in creating the, the terrible situation with it, forcing people to flee, creating the refugee problem. Uh, there's the environmental damage from war and military activities. The Asia-Pacific regional struggles against foreign bases. We probably have a speaker from Guam. We're also trying to get a speaker from the Pacific one of the Pacific Islands, possibly from Vanuatu, to talk about the absolute necessity for their sovereignty and independence from all big powers, and also the costs of war and military spending compared to socially useful spending, and generally about militarisation of society, universities and manufacturing. Now, this conference will be a very important conference. It'll, for more information, if people just 
if you just click on Independent Peaceful Australia Network, find our website there. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that in coming months. Thanks to Shirley Winton. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. What follows is a contribution by Dr. Ralph Newmark, the Director of the Institute of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University, to a public meeting last Wednesday titled Hands Off Venezuela. I've been a very troubled person in recent times because I've felt very much that the what could be called the Anglophone media, those in the United States and Australia, have been utterly misrepresenting the, con- the context in which what's happening in Venezuela at the moment. I'll declare I'm a historian of Brazil. However, I also cover the rest of Latin America. I can tell you that... I wanted to look at the Venezuelan situation in historical context, as I always do, because this is part of the problem. That you can't understand anything in uh, history without understanding where it came from. And Venezuela is a particularly interesting, more than interesting, it's, it's quite a, uh, a sad situation to say the least, but it's not the first nation in Latin America that has had to face this type of problem. Firstly, the internal issues. I mean, I don't have to tell, I think, this audience the whole history of Venezuela as such, and we haven't got time for that. But clearly, Venezuela stands out in uh, Latin America as the country that has had so much oil that it has really dominated the economy totally. What happened in 1998, I think, is the key moment that clearly we have coming to power... Oddly enough for Latin America, a military leader, and we're talking about Hugo Chavez here, who has an agenda that very much is in line with sort of traditional uh, Latin American economic nationalists and, of course, a towards a socialist perspective. This has happened many times in Latin America, and there's only one country that has managed to maintain this, because every country in Latin America that has tried to have a revolution or a dramatic change in political economy that actually starts to favour the most of the population and looks at redistributive policies has failed. And it's failed by predominantly due to both internal and external factors. I'm not actually going to talk about the US for a little while. I want to talk about Venezuela. Because I'll tell you, I want to do an internal and an external. I had a slide that doesn't seem to work here with one phrase, and really that's all I wanted to say. And the phrase said, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. I'll say it again. When you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And this is the story of many middle and particularly ruling elites in Latin America for a long time, that whenever there's been a challenge to their control, it is seen as oppression. And I think we're seeing it 
absolutely play out in Venezuela at the moment. The problem here is the attempt at the coup in Venezuela, which you probably know will know about in uh, 2002. Chavez, of course, passes away, but his policies, the Bolivarian Revolution, continued under Maduro. The problem with this is that when you have a particular resource, and oil has been, well, it's a blessing and a curse, of course, but clearly any attempts at major redistribution of wealth within the country, which would be in line with, well, if you like, a socialist um, perspective, but it's also a nationalist perspective in the sense, and by nationalism I'm talking about economic nationalism, that the economy is there for the country itself. There is a long history in Latin America of attempts to subvert economic nationalism. This means that places like Brazil in the 1940s and 50s, which nationalised its oil producer and oil distributor Petrobras, 1937 in Mexico with the Mexic-Pemex, all these attempts have been strongly resisted, particularly in by the United States, which I'll get to in a minute and talk about why. I just want to say that when you have, and I think Australians see part of the problem is that Australia is a country that, in a sense, at least has a reasonable distribution of wealth. Clearly, and I think this is increasing enormously, I mean, I've got to say, I keep seeing more and more homeless people. This really is disturbing. This was at least a country for all its faults, that it allowed at least had a Keynesian approach, particularly before 1980s and 90s, where there was a safety net, the government had a major role in the economy, but like all other countries, it has embraced neoliberalism after 1980. The sort of Reagan-Thatcher, Milton Friedman approach which in fact privatises government assets, deregulates labour such that the lowest wage is uh, is sought to employ people and of course a flight of industry to low-level, low-paying countries. I've got to say, I mean, we're living in a time warp here. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the British Industrial Revolution, the first one where when places like Manchester, etc., Birmingham, had industrialisation grow within the late 18th into the 19th century, you had a working class that lived in the most diabolical situations in terms of pay and diabolical situations in terms of safety. Look at the BRICS. The BRICS are the countries that have absorbed manufacturing, particularly from the so-called developed world. B for Brazil, R for Russia, but I I think Russia is quite a different case, but the ones that we will relate to are China and India. Now, Brazil, China and India have a massive explosion of industrialisation and service industries, but the problem is the wages paid there, and that's why these industries have gone there, are 19th century in relation to wages in other places. So capitalism has managed to turn the clock back to what it was like in the early days of industrialisation. If you've seen the working conditions you see in China and India and Brazil, the safety regulations are almost non-existent. So this type of major change under neoliberalism is part of what has focused people that try to resist this 
are definitely under the hammer, particularly from those small groups that benefit from this type of um, political economy, neoliberalism, and they are tend to be, it's clearly, a middle, upper middle and ruling elite. When you get a government coming in with an agenda to reverse this, and as I said, when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And the middle classes in Venezuela, just as they did in Chile in the 1970s, we're getting like replays. There's a few differences, clearly. This is, in a sense, was a military leftist government where you have now in, um, in Venezuela, military-backed uh, government in Venezuela. But the, the, the issue of the middle class is the same. When they start suffering in terms of some sort of attempts to reproduce, redistribute the economy, they basically say they're being oppressed. They flee. I think what we're seeing in Venezuela at the moment is, is rather outrageous, actually. First of all, the international community that has jumped on the bandwagon to recognise an illegal government there, a government that has never been a president, that's never been elected, this is something I think is really bears thinking about. We know Maduro won the last presidential election. Because some people boycotted, that's their choice. In Venezuela, it is an optional voting. You don't have to vote. People boycotted. Whether that was the difference or not, he clearly won. Now, this is like to recognise the leader of the opposition as the president, which the United States has, which, to my utter amazement, even the Labor Party has in Australia. This is something outrageous, let alone the Australian government and clearly many European governments. This is equivalent of us saying... I don't recognise the last presidential election in the United States. I think we'll... President, uh, what's her name? Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Ah, yes, yes. We, you know, we're going to recognise Hillary Clinton as the President of the United States. Can you imagine the furore that it cause? This is a legal government with external governments. I mean, this breaks every rule in international law in terms of the system in Venezuela was presidential. He won the election... And even though, if you want to argue that the opposition may have got a majority in the Congress, if you want to argue that, even that doesn't work. Because who won a majority in, in the United States midterm elections? The Democrats. So you can say, oh, well, hang on, hang on, the Democrats have a majority in Congress. And therefore, we will not recognise President, the President Trump. So what we're seeing here is an exception in the sense that because many people and particularly the loudest voices outside Venezuela are the fleeing middle class, we are seeing people coming on side with this. I've got to say that much of this escalation is more than ideological. I think it's clearly issues of oil. Venezuela is an exceptional country. that it has Its oil reserves, I think, are the biggest in the world, well, almost as much as Saudi Arabia. That people need to know there are, I mean, the amount of outlets that are giving an alternative analysis to what's going on in Venezuela is very rare. I was thankfully asked to be on the PM show, I don't know if you know that one, on the ABC, and I think it was the first time that I was aware, even on the ABC, by the way, where some sort of analysis was made of the context, to contextualise what's going on there. 
Most people have been fit from, well, there's a very well-known group of opposition people who live outside Venezuela, and particularly in Australia too, and they are upset. Well, they are upset. When you're accustomed, I don't know if you've heard this one before, but when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. What's really nasty about this, it seems, is that the role of the United States is continuing its old pattern. A lot of people ask me, um, you know, clearly I, as a historian I work on the United States' relationship with Latin America over the, what, uh, what, 243 years. We've got to remember here that the United States in many ways became the most important country in the world after World War II. But the people that lost World War II were the British, not the Germans, not the Japanese, the British. This was the great handing over of the dominance, the global dominance of the British Empire, which had been two, three hundred years, to the child, <laughs> the big child. And the United States had a vision for, world, for the post-war world, which they have tried to prosecute every chance they've had. The problem here is a misguided conception of their own country. And I don't blame the US citizens as such, except for their gullibility and perhaps, sadly, ignorance. The problem here is that the post-Second World War United States government, under a policy which is called the open door policy, now I don't know whether you're aware of this, it's not even a public policy in terms of it being delineated. It was a policy that had other names, national security doctrine, etc., this sort of thing, but what it was was basically their big chance to remake the world in the image of the United States. The rest of the world could benefit from the best system in the world as they saw it. It's called altruism gone nuts. It's called arrogance gone nuts. Hubris. Now, I don't know if that's a word you use in your every day of your life, but hubris means an arrogance that leads to disaster. Because the underpinning of this policy, and if you go back and look at the pronouncements after World War II, people like Dean Acheson, of course, uh, John Foster Dulles, who was a bit meaner, but the idea was that this is the chance to produce the perfect world, because we've produced the perfect country. And the way we're going to do this is that we're going to ask everyone to join us in a big, cuddly, wonderful world of Free, notice the words, free, democratic, capitalist liberalism. What if you didn't want that? And maybe you had been in the United States and maybe looked at the country and said, well, it's not quite as good as, not quite as good as they seem to think. Oh, it's good if you're wealthy, if you're good, if you're a, uh, a middle class uh, person who benefits. But have a look at the prisons. Any country that has a majority of inmates who come from a minority, there's something definitely wrong. And you know as well as I do, but like here, sadly, for our Indigenous people, that the number of African-Americans, the proportion of African-Americans in US jails is far beyond the population. What's going on there? It's economic and it's clearly racist as well. Now, the problem became that a number of countries didn't want to buy in to this model because if you were going to follow the US model, you had to have a number of things. You had to have free trade, open investment, access to 
outside countries coming in and uh, taking, using your raw materials. Access to trade, access to investment, access to raw materials. If this was the world system, everyone would live happily ever after. What it discounts is people who don't want to do it. What it rules out is economic nationalism. Economic nationalism meaning that the economy is basically there for your own country. That foreign investment is not allowed in key industries like oil, like mining. This was not only socialism, I mean, it was also people like Getulio Vargas in Brazil and uh, Juan Perón. This was, in a sense, an, an attempt by other nations to say, we want our economies working for ourselves. Now, the real arrogance comes in is that this was not tolerated. Clearly, communism was unacceptable because there's no private sector. So, we start the Cold War. We say that Eastern Europe basically is an example of Soviet expansion and those Soviets, all they want to do is take over the world. Others have seen Eastern Europe, the Soviets not going back home to their border as a creation of a defensive buffer mechanism. I mean, you've got to remember that Russia was invaded by Napoleon and Hitler. No wonder they didn't want other people on their borders. But the point is here that really where it gets nasty is what we traditionally called the third world. Think of Korea. Think of Vietnam. So many Latin American examples, that, go back to 1953 in Guatemala, 64 in Brazil, 73 in Chile, uh, Nicaragua throughout the 80s. It goes on and on and on. And it's happening now in Venezuela. And sadly, the collaborating middle classes, and they are suffering, and everyone's suffering. How do you get a coup? You turn your country into a crisis area. But who created the crisis is the central issue to this. People talk about the fact that there's shortages of food, that they, uh, they're not exporting. They have, the problem is, where is this coming from? And clearly, it's an external issues here and the flight of capital and expertise by the middle class who know that if they flee, they will create a crisis and ultimately that Maduro will fall in some way. I think the Venezuelan people are going to gain strength from Cuba, which has held out for 60 years. But this is one of the most extraordinary achievements, I think, in the history of the world that a country 90 miles from, from Florida has had a 60-year so, uh, socialist revolution. Clearly, the Soviets were involved in that, but they haven't collapsed yet. And I think many of the Venezuelan people get great courage from that. You've been listening to Dr. Ralph Newmark, and Ralph was talking at a meeting last Wednesday at Trades Hall, which was um, attended by the... Venezuela Natasha and um, was hands off Venezuela was the title of the, the evening and it went for quite a while with lots of questions to both the participants it's ongoing lots to be done that's about all for me for today but I will pay a couple more announcements and then um, done by law <laughs> 